You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week we caught up with Vijay Medalia, co-owner and bartender at Native Bar in Singapore. We talk about his start in the local club scene, working in Operation Dagger, opening Native, and bringing his mom to the Asia 50 Best Awards. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my name is uh, Vijay Mudalia, and I'm a co-owner and bartender at Native Bar Singapore. Thank you for finding the time. Uh, finally, we get to sit down together. <laughs> uh, but uh, to be fair, you've been an awesome host. Uh, I mean, uh, you can really tell that Singapore is your playground and is your hometown. And uh, the way that uh, you look after us is awesome. So I'm glad I get to return the favor and uh, sit down here to talk to, to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I know we've been uh, talking about this for really long, but uh, I've been on the road and if not, you're on the road. And then finally, it's nice to just come in the middle and have this coffee and this chat today. How's life treating you? Life's good. Uh, life's uh, always throwing a couple of curveballs, you know, your way. And uh, I think that's what we, we live for in this industry to, to always uh, challenge ourselves. And it also gives us the happiness. That's awesome stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, beginnings. So we all know you from Native, but I'm mm-hmm. sure that being at Native was a process. So where did you start bartending? When did you fall in love with it? So I started bartending when I was back in school. Sort of a classic story of like I needed to pay my school fees. I was looking for a job that paid well and allowed me to clock the hours. And I actually started out working in uh, clubs. This is like 12 years ago. So there was uh, not much cocktail bars or the cocktails that I was slinging out was all, uh, you know, kamikazes, flaming Lamborghinis, B-52s. The bluer the better. <laughs> the blue, blue lagoons. <laughs> um, so that's, that's how I really started. So I started working out at Zook, actually. That was my, my first job. Uh, a few weeks after my 18th birthday, um, I was working at, as a waiter in an, another bar and I, I didn't really enjoy it. You know, the bartenders always looked so much cooler, you know, slinging cocktails. Um, one of the days, like, my friends was working at Zook and one of the guys didn't show. And he called me like, do you want to work? And I'm like, when? He's like, now. And I'm like, okay. So I turned up uh, and that, that was the, the, the beginning of it. So I basically started working in clubs my, my first few years. Uh, till I was 18 to 21 different styles of clubs and then after that I sort of moved towards more of their like you know um, hotel bars whiskey bars wine bars so you did a bit of everything eh? restaurant bars and then slowly transi- transitioning into cocktail bars about maybe six years ago yeah which one was your first big cocktail bar mm, I w- I wouldn't say my big first cocktail bar, but my first experience in a sense that I think I was always struggling because I I loved the industry. I loved bartending, but, you know, about six years ago was the turn of the industry in Singapore. You know, it was it was really hard. I was bartending and I was earning nothing, you know, and you were going home with uh, with the flat paycheck and the, the guys that you grew up with, you know, they they had transitioned into like corporate jobs and they were starting to do well for yourself. And here you are, you're doing something you love, but it's a struggle to even like feed yourself, you know. And that first opportunity that got me thinking that, you know, maybe I can actually do this proper for a living uh, was the chance to work with uh, Jason Adderton when he actually opened up here. So opened up with the Unlisted Group back at that time, um, Poland restaurant. Mm -hmm. So that was my first sort of, um, experience with like a Michelin star chef, you know, how they ran and, you know, there were people in the kitchen back then who were like former El Bui, you know, so the standards were like really high and it was a huge jump for me. And I think I got to work with uh, guys like Gareth, Gareth Evans, who who was back then working for Jason and it just, just brought me to a whole new world and the bar manager back then, Stefan Ravali, he came in and he's like, we're going to do like, crazy cocktails and people are gonna enjoy it here. I'm like, are you sure? I'm not really sure if the market's ready for 
for that style. So I think that was my first sort of uh, experience with what a what an international bar should look like. And then obviously, the same group they opened up the library just about one year later, which was uh, one of the few new speakeasies you know in town. There was like a there was a library in front, and then you had a password, and then you go in, and then it was uh, it was a cocktail bar. So I think that was my first sort of like jump into into the the cocktail world. So by le- working with chefs, what is it that you picked up from them? Because you mentioned the fact that you know you've been exposed to this sort of mission star mentality, and you know it really opened up your eyes. What is it that specifically you picked from that? I think working with with chefs was um, really interesting in a sense that you know we were working with some young chefs as well at that point of time and they were so interested in our world and we were so interested in their world you know they would come after work for drinks and they're like what's this uh, chartreuse what's amaro what's fernet and they're like okay you know I, I really like this amaro do you think we could make an ice cream out of it do you think we could add it in a donut glaze and from our side we would be like okay you know i have this ingredient you know i'm juicing beetroots and then some of the chefs would come in like why don't you like sous vide and then blend it into a puree and you'd be like what's a sous vide you know back then so you just i think they taught us how to 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 understand ingredients a bit better and like with each ingredient what what care and technique you can uh, add to it and from outside you know we sort of sort of show them like you know the there's a lot of interesting spirits out there and eventually you know there could be a cohesion between bars and uh, chefs uh, talk to us about uh, the library uh, the place is not <coughs> open any longer is it yeah it's not it's not open anymore but um i think when when the library opened uh, there was a few cocktail bars in singapore obviously 28 i think had been established for a year before the library opened and then there was uh jigger and pony but that was it so it was a it was a nice little tight little group and um i think it was nice for the community back then you know because uh, people were just starting to get into cocktails and that sort of novelty of this like you know cheeky speakeasy with the password and and uh, all that sort of just helped to to promote the the cocktail culture people would come in with the open mind you know and then uh, back then we were doing drinks with like dry ice and liquid ah, nitrate yeah, yeah, and like um, like a garnish uh, like five different garnishes over one drink and we had a we had a punch bowl that came in a bathtub and a rubber ducky so I mean looking back now it's all all like really cheesy but back then you know if we if we didn't have that prop or that you know sort of um, uh, for photogenic sort of cocktails you know people might not have been interested to actually try the ingredients in the cocktail you know like fenebranca or chartreuse or all these mezcals you know but you know some of the the cutest i remember we had this drink in a little milk bottle it's like a sort of like a milk punch and it had a bit of mezcal in it you know and back then mezcals were just starting to come up in the market and if it wasn't in that milk bottle you know nobody would have ordered it like straight up but you know the fact that it came in that sort of cutesy little milk <laughs> bottle with a ribbon and a colorful straw you know people were open to like hey you know I, I want that cocktail and I think slowly we sort of um, tried to get them to experience dif- different flavors that way I think it's very important to have um, drinks that are accessible to your guests and I think the looks of it like it's a very very important element isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. We were talking on here with uh, Jim Mian and he said that part of the success of PDT was due to the fact that the door is hidden in a phone booth and people have to walk through it and there's this element of theater, which is very important, right? Yeah. Uh, what happened after library? Um, so uh, library, after library, you know, I, I do, when I was working in the group, I had a really good opportunity to go up to London to, to stage with uh, the guys in Blind Pick. So this was... About, um, seven years ago so okay. i think it was the year where they won like best restaurant bar 2013 2012 2013 yeah 2013 so i think gareth uh and and stefan from over here they hooked it up and that was a different experience as well you know stepping behind the bar in london seeing how the guys work over there and uh, the standards were like totally different you know uh it was uh, it was a bit of a a shock to me you know and after 
after work I'm like hi guys how do you go home and it's like ah uh, you take the night bus or you or you cycle you know and then over here in Singapore after you finish work it's like mandatory for the company to to get yeah, your taxi yeah. and I was like oh my god I'm I, I've been so spoiled you know <laughs> working <laughs> working in Singapore so I think I had a I was 23 back then and then like first time uh in London looking at like cocktail bars like primarily I've been there before so I like you know doing your your rounds going to artisan back then you know uh going to the blind pig going to like Nigeria and checking out these bars when they were in their prime so that was that was something new for me and then I came back I finished about 2 years with the group and then I took a break um not really knowing what to do i guess and then i was just doing like some consultancy like helping out some like neighborhood bars and restaurants pop up and coming up with like simple cocktail programs for them so that that took me a year and then i uh, decided to join i guess operation dagger before we get to operation dagger mm-hmm. um you mentioned that you've been uh, going around bars in london um mm-hmm. which ones were your favorite and how did they inspire you towards the development of your career or who you are right now mm, i think um back then okay it's been a while uh but when i probably first went 2013 i think like the like just how busy niger was that was that was what um what I was looking at I was like wow this I went on a Monday and it was slamming and there was a long queue and I think in in Singapore like we get busy but you don't see queues you know like yeah to get into a bar yeah and and over there I saw the queue and the bar was slamming and the bar itself was really tiny I was like oh my god how are they like whipping out drinks for so many people you know I think that's that's one of the things that I was thinking about and then of course going to to the artisan um back then and and seeing how they worked and that that hospitality aspect of it all that was that was pretty cool yeah how long did you work in operation dagger for i worked in operation dagger for about one and a half years uh-huh. so um, that was that was really cool so i was i was not really sure <clears throat> i was doing like consultancy and stuff and i wasn't really sure what i wanted to to do I, I know I wanted to work behind a bar again but there was nothing like really calling you know and then I heard through the grapevine you know that uh Luke was going to open Operation Dagger but back then he had just opened Oxwell like he set it up over here and then I had heard about like the rum from the guys who obviously used to work there like Zack and the uh, the former like um crew that worked at Tipling Club. So and then they were like, "Oh, you know, this guy's going to open this bar and it's going to be about like Rodeveb and techniques and all that." And for a long time, you know, that I think that was the angle that I was uh uh trying to move into. So I remember uh met Luke for an interview, but then he wanted me to work at Oxwell and I didn't want that. I wanted to work at the the new bar and Eventually I can't remember what happened but once they opened and then one of his friends who was working with him had to go back to Melbourne and there was a opening and I I was like yeah I'll start work right away so that was that was really cool and that was a whole new uh different world for me as well you know working working with those guys and uh back then when when I was there it was very much like a family you know so it was Luke it was Aki Uh, his partner it was Ejun it was myself and then later on Sasha came in as well so it was very nice and we were doing something very different back then i mean they still they still are doing something very different but it was a huge shock for the community uh and huge shock for customers people would come in and they would no matter how much you explained they just wouldn't understand what we were doing it's like oh i i want a hendrix and tonic but like oh the back bar has no brands you know we do everything ourselves infusions from scratch and people just wouldn't understand it so and then after about like 6 to 8 months working there you started to see a shift in mentality with the with the consumers and they started to get it and the bar started to get like really 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 busy and it was it was good it was it was a very good time in my career 
what did you do to make uh, to bridge the gap in between uh, what you guys were doing and the consumer level like what were you did you have any trick or anything mm. like that that you did i think i mean i can't answer for for luke and aki uh but i mean having worked with them i think um they're, they're the kind of characters is like okay this is what we're doing and full stop <laughs> i don't i don't think i don't think we did anything to, to bridge the gap and it was like okay we're, we're different don't forget that and just keep pushing along that line and we wait for people to, turn to catch up. up and products good so be be confident that's crazy though eh? yeah balls of steel to do that right yeah yeah and it was nice to see a transition in the consumers as well because even buttons will come in and Back then, this was like five years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Operation Dagger. Back then, like bartenders would come in and that was a period where like brands were like, you know, like like a thing. There was brands, t-shirts, there was brand caps, there was bartenders who would be tattooing like pineapples on their <laughs> on their forearm, Sick, yeah. um, you know, for Nabranca coins. So that was the period where like brand, like sub, like a loyalty to a brand was was a huge thing and we were doing the exact opposite. So buttons would come in and they're like, you know what, uh, the bar's okay, but I still like my my brands. I like my to see Fairnet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean eventually like we, we had like Fernabranca and all in the bar and I think they were even trying to create their own Fernabranca at that time. I'm not sure if they they ever ever got to it, but you know, it's just the idea it was just the idea that, you know, without um a brand without like that sort of idea that someone's put into you how would you look at flavors in a neutral way if everything sort of looked the same you know if there wasn't a spirit category in your drink description and you just had to sort of experience the drink by itself you know that was that was the whole idea i guess when uh, did you start uh, pondering the idea of opening your own bar um i think when i was back in school me and my friends you know when we were working in clubs and stuff we always wanted our own business i think of, of a group of us you know back in school we always wanted our own business and we tried a few things you know the classic t-shirt business didn't work out <laughs> uh, but it was always on the back of my mind you know like i've always wanted to to have my own business and i think i it grew a little bit more uh during my time when i was working at dagger during that era when i was hitting about 26 yeah that was that was when it started to really come down to me like you know i i want to start my own thing and what steps did you take in order for you to open your own bar because it's the, especially the first is not an easy task yeah so like um after finishing off at dagger you know we we left at a on a good note and I was pretty much free again, not sure what to do. So I, I had this idea that I wanted to open my own bar, but I was, I was quite nervous about it. You know, I felt like I wasn't ready. So I had a bit of a pocket of time and I looked through all the bars in the world. And I was like, okay, so I've worked at so many different styles of bars, you know, and if I could work in one more bar in the world, like where would it be? And I looked at it and I said, okay, you know, that, I really like the idea of like what the guys at White Lion uh, are doing, you know. So I got a friend that connected me to Ian Griffiths, and yeah. then he replied like, oh, "If you want to come for a stage, like yeah, man, let's let's make it work." I'm like, okay. So I took my bags, went to London again, and then I spent uh, some time with the guys in White Lion, uh, 2016, and and that was that was really really cool. And uh, obviously uh, Ryan was there. And uh, obviously, I worked with guys over there like Ali, Kelsey, and Maya, and Robin, and those guys, and that was that was really cool. How did that change the way you think about drinks? Um, there was there was a lot of similarity, you know, in the way that I was already thinking about drinks, but there was also a lot of things that I learned, you know, like all all the little stuff that they had, and I went into. I always tell the young bartenders this, right? I always went into White Line and I was like, okay, we're going to see the best gadgets, everything. I'm going to use everything. And then we went to the basement for prep and all they had was uh, a sous vide and an induction cooker. That's it. 
that's it. And some of the craziest drinks I've had and prepped and tried came from came from that basement. And it all goes down to like, you know, the top process and obviously like Ryan, Ian and all those guys involved in that project, you know, it's just like how you think about drinks, you can you can it, it's the most powerful thing. And I was I was just like mind blown like with the induction and a, and a sous vide, uh, you know, what you could do. That's incredible to to, to see. I, I thought they had uh, all sorts of weird stuff going on there. <laughs> I didn't know they were uh, so like. But I guess that if, as you said, right, if you have your uh, mind right and you know you're f- focusing on ingredients, then you don't need much more, right? Yeah. To extract flavors out of it. That's that's awesome. And so, uh, when did you come up with uh, the idea of native? So, I mean, um, I was working at. at um, dagger you know like I, I wanted to there was this part of me that wanted to break out and do do something else and it was weird because i've for the first like nine and a half years of my career i was never really using any like local produce i was always looking to like global trends and like uh european trends what people are doing in london what ingredients they're using you know what's happening in like new york and then one day you know i just like uh was going out looking for for like some wild sorrel like like foraging and you know it grows everywhere in the city and then that just just popped this small little question mark you know in my head and it's like okay if we have wild sorrel what else do we have and then i started looking and then we i started to find so much more ingredients like wild sorrel wild jackfruit uh mangoes pepper leaves you know, star fruits, um, shiny bush, um, so many different kind of herbs, warts, fruits, and I'm like, hey, you know, we are we are in a tropical climate, we are in a equator line, so there must be a few things that that grow here. And then I started like just this little question just started to grow, and I was like, okay, you know, so if do we have a local spirit? No, but what if we can work like regionally, right, within the region? And then like, okay, we don't have citrus, but that's okay because for like the last few years of my career, I haven't been using much citrus as well, you know? It's the bartender's mindset of creativity to explore acidity different. Okay, I can do that, you know? Yogurt whey, um, kombuchas, homemade vinegars, and eventually ants, you know, which was one of our uh, first cocktails. And that slowly led to, okay, then... What can I use for my mixes? Uh, I don't have champagne. What do we have? Oh, I found like sparkling sake, you know? And then that just grew and I'm like, okay, so now I have a basic portfolio of like spirits that are from the region. And what about, could we extend that, you know? Could we extend that to our furniture? Okay, we can. Could we extend that? Is there like local apron makers? Is there, you know, like um, local carpenters? And the last part was like, is there local musicians, you know? And then we just slowly sort of started to dive into each aspect. And then I had this little circle of ideas and I'm like, you know what? This could this could work. And I mean, obviously having worked in bars, like have been, have been behind bars like White Lion and Dagger, my idea was like, okay, give me a spirit, give me, uh, ingredients put it in my hands and it's my job to make it taste good you know and then I was like brought a group of friends together I'm like you know what I got this crazy idea and uh, that's that's the beginning of how it how it started how did you go about finding a site and why did you decide to be where you are so uh, I had just come back from London after the stage from White Lion and then um one of my chef friends who, who was working in the area, he's like, hey man, um, do you know anybody who wants to take a space? I'm like, what space? He's like, oh, it's in the second floor. I'm like, okay. Um, what's the rent? What's it like? And he's like, yeah. Um, he told me the numbers and I was like, okay, can I take a look? He's like, you? You want to take it? I'm like, yeah. So um, initially when we first started Native, the whole idea was to be outside the CBD actually, because you know, now now the idea of using like local and regional feels very normal. But like three years ago, just three years ago when we first started doing it, the idea of like using a spirit from like 
Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand would be almost considered moonshine, you know. So I I didn't really want we the idea was very different, was very unique, and I didn't want to be in the CBD and to to compete with the with the big boys. So the whole idea was like, you know, I spent ten years of my life um, wanting to open a cocktail bar, you know, and I want to do something that makes me happy, something that I can turn up to work every day to do. And I don't want it to be a competition. I just want to be there doing my own things. You know, if I'm serving seven people a day, um, I'm happy, you know, as long as people come in and they leave happy. So we didn't get much sights outside there, but we saw this space and I went in and I absolutely fell in love with it. And uh, it was an office space previously. And they had like, you know, they had put carpet over the floor. They had sealed up the walls. But the history of the building was was really interesting because um, it was about 200 years old. So we had an Amoy Street. So that's where the early settlers would land because uh, the port used to come all the way up to Amoy Street. All the way there? All the way there. So like people who, traders and stuff, they would land in Amoy Street first as the first port and then they would start trading. So all the shop houses used to be uh, trading houses initially and then eventually in the middle they became opium dense and then okay. <laughs> now it's all fmb so it made sense you know the buildings got history and then once we uncovered like took out the carpets you know the floor the beams the bricks everything's been there since day one and uh we had one of the older guys who did the carpentry he came in to do the works and he's like i grew up in amoy street and those bricks are the original bricks that i See, grew up in. yeah he said that so i was like okay you know if we're gonna do something that represents our location our place, our people, you know. It only makes sense to move into a, a building with a bit of history and they used to sell opium and now we're selling alcohol, you know. It's just... Close uh, enough. Guess, <laughs> close yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's really how the, the space came about. How do you design the menu and how do you drive creativity in Native? Hmm, I think when we first designed the menu, the whole idea was like... So we, we don't do any classics at, at the bar. And the whole reason behind that was when we first started using the the spirits that we have, you know, so uh, Singapore gins, you know, Indian whiskeys, Arak from the region. I didn't really want to use them and try to compete with an international category. I didn't want to make a Indian old fashioned with an Indian whiskey and try to compare that to a regular bourbon old fashioned. I two things. I I don't think that would be a right way to sort of uh, get people to try these things. And also like we wanted to let these spirits shine in their own manner, you know, sort of. Why don't we just take a different route instead of making cocktails of classics, which we've been doing for ever. And there's so many other bars doing that and they do it really well. Why don't we look at the spirit, where it's from, who makes it, what's around it, what's the history, uh, what ingredients are used in that part of the region, uh, where's the place, time, you know. So the the whole cocktail menu is based off location, time, people, tradition. So like we have cocktails in the menu like the Peranakan. So like, you know, talking about the local Peranakan people who are a very diverse mix of different cultures, you know, they use so many interesting ingredients that, you know, they're one of the few cultures that use them, like the, the buakaluak, the candle nuts, you know, laksa leaves. So why can't we create cocktails from, from like, from just the start, you know, and why can't we create cocktails from an empty canvas instead of a canvas which has all the formulas and a twist on that? And, you know, like, we hope that the cocktails that we represent, you know, has a certain meaning, a certain idea, and people walk out, you know, learning a little bit more about a culture, a place, an ingredient that they've not tried before. And even even for myself, you know, as a Singaporean, um, we've grown so quickly as a city that, you know, a lot of us are used to, and we, are, we know basic knowledge about wine, we know basic knowledge about fine dining, but it's quite interesting to see that we don't have a basic knowledge about our own culture, our own ingredients. And when we first started, it was so interesting. We would have ingredients that, you know, like our grandparents and our parents knew, but like we would show the customers like, okay, this is what goes into your cocktails. 
and they would have no clue what it is. You know, they would mistake the cannon nuts for the buah kelua, or you'd be surprised how many young Singaporeans haven't had a laksa leaf like fresh. We have it in our food as a paste, but just by looking at it, they won't know what That's it is. That's crazy, yeah. Yeah. So I, even for me, you know, like I think I'm catching up. You know, I'm talking to the older people, the grandmas. You know, what do you guys used to use? How can we involve those ingredients back again? Um, so th- that's how we think about our cocktails. Did you get a pushback from the guests at the beginning? Um, it was quite interesting. We honestly thought that people would really not like what we do and find it really weird. So you know, we had we had ants on the on the first menu, and I thought people would be creeped out, you know. And then it just turned out that uh, people really enjoyed it. From from the from the beginning, we we obviously had a few push pushbacks. People come in, you know, they want to have their old fashioned negronis, and when you tell someone, we don't do that, uh, but we try to explain to them, okay, the the reason is because we work with these ingredients, and we don't have Campari, but why don't you try a cocktail in the menu? You know, it might be quite similar to what you're you're asking, but it was also nice that we grew very slowly, like, you know, customers came at. Um, at a very uh, comfortable pace. So most of the nights were quiet nights and then we could explain to customers like why why we were doing what we did. And when we started the bar, we only had 10 porters on the back bar. And I honestly didn't know if there were any more, but I didn't want to wait for everything to happen and then open native. I'm like, we're going to open it and then we're going to start finding. That makes sense, <laughs> right? Yeah, because you will never be ready anyway, so yeah. you might as well start, right? Yeah, and, and the idea was so crazy back then that, you know, I, th- I think I asked about 40, 40 odd potential investors and no one invested. No one invested. Really? No one, yeah. Everybody thought we were crazy. Like when we said we wanted to play local music, everyone was like, what's it going to be? Is it going to be like Kento pop or, you know, like, or we're going to use like regional spirits. Everyone was like, oh, is it going to be like Moonshine, you know, I... I had that thing in Phuket and in a full moon party and it gave me a really bad headache. And I was like, no, 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 that's not the line that we are going for. So eventually the, the space is just me and a couple of good friends. Huh? So one of them since I've known since I was seven, two since I've known since I was 17, um, and uh, like two more like good friends over time. So... It's crazy because they put the money in and like without expectations, they're like, okay, we want to support your dream. We want to see it happen. And and that's where we are. So like credit cards, bank loans, everything maxed out on the line. Still very broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's an awesome story. And I think that uh, what I love about it is that you had to go through a process of rediscovering who you are like you know from the ingredients that are used in your culture and i think that's 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 amazing yeah um how big is your team at the moment so we've really grown when we first started out it was me leon um anbar and kai so we started out with three efforts and then kai joined in like a month later and now there's um including myself there's there's five full-timers and then we rotate like three to four Part-time. Part-time, yeah. Tell us a, a bit about uh, your uh, composting because I found oh, yeah. that very interesting. So I think, you know, over some time, you know, the idea of just like being responsible in what we do, it just became quite natural to me. So obviously we were we were starting to, to recycle and stuff and just having this idea of like waste in the bar, you know, when we were new, it, it was just sort of annoying mm-hmm. to me. So we obviously had like trash bags and waste and stuff. And it was just quite annoying like having to lug the trash bags out. And I've been doing it for 10 years. And I think that's one thing that I've always hated. Like end of the shift, lugging that trash bag and like just dumping it in. It's, it's just not a good feeling, you know. So I was like, okay, we're going to eliminate this entirely. So obviously we had trash bags and we had trash. And we f- when we first opened, you know, we, we were just throwing things in there. And then one Friday, I was like, hey guys, you know, from today onwards, we're going to weigh our trash. And they're like, what? 
they were they were slightly shocked. So we started weighing, and then like on a busy Friday, we would ha- we would have like eight hundred grams of trash. You know, the entire bar, which is still pretty decent. Does this include bottles? Ah, uh, no. So okay, recycling aside, just like food waste. Okay. Mm. So and then we just open up the trash bag and we would dig in really deep, and then we realized like, hey, you know, this doesn't need to be thrown. We could have made like a powder an infusion. Um, uh, fermentation or whatsoever with that and like that is actually recycling that's not trash so like I think sometimes when you just have a trash bin it just makes it easy you know and then we're like okay so now we've segregated like we are re- we're recycling but what are we doing with the food waste and I was like why don't we try a compost and we had no idea how composting worked so we just got a bin drilled some holes and then we started throwing some food waste and then it was it was composting really well but it was producing a lot of like nitrogen so it was getting really wet so we started adding like coffee grounds which helped but it was still like wet compost and then we realized like over time we had to add like browns so that's where the lotus leaf coaster comes about because after we're done with it we add it into the compost and things like leaves um you know cardboard coconut husk uh, rice house all these are considered browns and they help to neutralize compost so and then we started churning with that and then we now we have compost we're like okay what we're gonna do we're gonna start to have to grow our own things because can't just sit there exactly so we started growing all these micro herbs and all these um uh, things that eventually ends up in our cocktails like pandan and all that in our small little outdoor area it's not a lot but then we realized like okay we're having too much compost to the size of the things that we're growing and for the bar. So then it came to a point where, guys, we have to sit down and just because we have a compost doesn't mean you, you throw everything. I want to see everything like being almost um, um, extracted to it, its maximum potential before it goes into the compost. So like when we first started, we had like beetroots in a, in one of the cocktails. We made a, like, a, like a quick set jelly from it and then the pulp became a mocktail the skin became like uh, spice seasoning for one of the snacks so by the time the pub went into the, um, the compost it was like totally yeah, no more flavor to give. yeah no nothing left so uh that's what that's what we did and then it, it now we're in a very good place i would i would say we have zero food waste at the bar which is very very nice but i think this year where we are struggling and I think a lot of bars in the world are, are struggling and hopefully we can try to make a change is with our recycling efforts. How do we how do we reduce on recycling? So of course we work with the local farms, so we get like ingredients sent to us and we have a little note that says uh no plastic packaging. So they bring in a tub, we sign off, they put it on the table and then they take it back, which helps a lot. But no matter how hard we try, somehow like a plastic packaging or or something comes comes through so and luckily right now we're getting like recyclable plastics at least you know but hopefully we can push it like really push it out or find ways to 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 use these plastics for other use and of course uh with glass recycling uh, we've done much better this year because there's been a few more distilleries in town so like the meat Guys, you know, when they s- deliver the bottle, we once we finish, we just send the bottle back. Same for the gins. Uh, now we're doing it with the beer bottles as well. So it just means less glass recycling for us. And hopefully we can sort of reduce it over time. It's, I don't think there's an instant answer in the industry right now. But I think we got to work together to find different ways. Huh? I think one step at a time, right? Yeah. Uh, it's very important that we don't stop at straws and uh, we look at other ways <laughs> that we can. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true. I mean, you know, I think straws are a good start, but there's a lot to it, right? Yeah. And uh, did you get a little bit of a pushback from distilleries when you asked them to bring back bottles? I think in the beginning, yes. But then we pushed a little harder. And I think eventually they reached a point where they were like, okay, you know, we have to start doing this. Everybody has to start being involved. So now it's, uh, now it's in a good, good place. 
you have seen uh, pretty much the whole of the evolution of uh, the Singapore cocktail scene. Yeah. Uh, how was it back then and how is it now and what are the main differences that you perceive as a local Singaporean? Um, I think it's crazy because I'm, I'm 30 this year, you know. 1989. Yeah, 89, yeah. So I, I w- I'm definitely not old, but I was in a era of bartending with guys like, you know, uh, Peter Chua and, and, and these guys who are, are Zach, Zachary Degit, you know. So I think we, we are in an interesting era of bartenders in Singapore where we've transitioned from old to new. So we all used to work in clubs or some dodgy joint one point in our life and then we transitioned into like cocktail bartending. So um, we've got like two different sites of, of bartending which we've seen and we are quite lucky. Like the, the old school bartending way was almost like military, right? Like if you didn't do something, someone would elbow you or knock you on the head or, 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 or you're using a toothbrush to clean up a fridge, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> you know? And then we transitioned to like, okay, you're making cocktails now. You're a, you're a bartender. You can do this for a living. You can, you can put yourself on the international scene. You can put your, your Singapore on the international scene. So we've seen it transition quite a bit. And I think it's, it's lucky for myself, you know, having been through like some really hard managers and working in clubs where like when it gets busy, like on Zook, if like, like a main DJ comes in or like you're on Zook out and Tiesto spinning and you're serving like 70,000 people and the pace is like insane, you know? So you, you learn how to deal with pressure back then. And also like back then, you know, when there wasn't like cocktail bars, everybody was serving gin and tonics and vodka cranberries. And how do you, how do you establish yourself as a bartender with your customers, you know? So it might be like it's busy bar, and three layers deep and you see a regular customer, you know, eye contact, you got his drink ready, cash plus tips right there just because of your service. So I think back then it was like, you had to learn about service because you didn't have interesting drinks to, to sell, America. right? And so I think that was really my foundation. And uh, when when we transitioned to the cocktail world, obviously you have to give, give credit to like Proof and uh, the 28 guys, like how they really skyrocketed uh, the the cocktail scene over here, and back then, you know, it, it's interesting. I always I always tell the younger bartenders like we would stay up late at night at three or four and look online for the the top fifty bars, you uh-huh. know, and and of course twenty eight would be there, but there would be no other Singaporean representative. And back then, people wouldn't even have heard of like the Singapore bar scene. So I've been traveling to London every year, or maybe more than once a year since. 2013 and when I would go to bars and like hey you know we're from Singapore people would look at you like okay cool cool and story bro <laughs> yeah and every year that changed you know like 2016 oh you're from Singapore I've heard of what do you think of like 28 what do you think of Dagger what do you think of Manhattan you know so we've I think we've worked really 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 hard as a city to 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 put the the cocktail scene on the map and uh, the special thing about Singapore and where it's come is like, I will always say we have one of the best communities in a sense that we have so many international bartenders. We have so many local bartenders, but there's no like invisible divide. You know, everybody comes together. Everybody helps each other. We've got that group chat with over 200 bartenders, yeah. which is which is as much help as it is uh, <laughs> spam and gifs and memes. And <laughs> uh, but, you know, every everybody's like ready to help each other. Like if there's a new bartender in town, needs a couch, he needs to know a supplier, he needs a job, you know. Um, and within the bartender group over here as well, you know, there's there's no divide of like, oh, I'm a, I'm a top bartender at this bar and that's uh, upcoming bartender we don't mix you know everybody sort of comes along hangs out um organizes events and i think that's that's the strong point of where we've we've really come and also with the with the help of international bartenders and local bartenders you know there's a there's a diversity in the cocktail scene so like every bar that you go to it's going to be very different 
it's not like a lot of cocktail cities where you go to five bars and they all have a similar yeah template you know it happens a lot i was recently in a couple of cities and mm. you know like you walk into bar number one it's a speakeasy yeah you know like bro brownster drinks you go to bar number two speakeasy brownster drinks yeah 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 it's true I, I, that's what i love about singapore too it's like such a diverse community and you've got so many different bars and concepts and, and people who work very hard to establish themselves as unique right yeah uh, going back to native uh, mm. your uh, menu is very interesting how many yeah. drinks do you have in there and what's the inspiration behind uh, the drinks that you do so we've got um, seven drinks and we like to switch it up uh, quickly right now the menu is really cool for me because um, we have like over 30 of ingredients just sauce like 60 km from the bar in Singapore which is like 60 by 40 km <laughs> so we have 30 over ingredients you know so this menu was really pushing it's like what do we really have you know and we have like some amazing local soy sauce that we've put into the cocktails we're getting side cuts of bread from a local bakery fermenting that into like a bread wine we are foraging for like jackfruits pepper leaves sorrow you know we have some of like our herbs from our own garden some from the local farmers local spirits local meat we have a cocktail with spring water in singapore and um 10 out of 10 singaporeans wouldn't know there's a there yeah. we've got a spring um over here so we're really pushing the limits of like what what do we really have it's it's challenging but i think the exciting thing about what we do is there's a lot of restrictions, obviously. And with restrictions come out like true creativity, in, in my opinion. Um, I'm not sure if everybody agrees with that, but, you know, because we, when you have a lot of uh, access, you know, you end up going back to the same thing, but we're like, okay, so we work backwards in our cocktail menus. Like we're going to, so we all sit down and then we drop a map and we're like, what are we going to talk about? So, and what are we going to, make the cocktails with so we talk about like cultures tradition ingredients so for example one of the guys said i want a cocktail to represent the christang people which is uh sort of the fo uh, getting forgotten in singapore is the local eurasians they've been here since 1500s they have their own language they have their own culture they have their own ingredients and then we work backward backwards okay now we have this template how are we going to find these ingredients and then we have these ingredients how are we going to source them organically sustainably or within a parameter of 100 km and what can we do so that's how we work on the cocktails we decide what we want to do first and what we want to represent and then we work backwards and then we try to squeeze it in uh, you were at the ceremony for uh, asia 50 best this year yeah yeah and i've been told that you decided to bring your mom yeah over. yeah i brought i brought my mom for for this so i brought my mom and my fiance and I think um, growing up, I was a really shitty kid, like real <laughs> shitty, like always, uh, my mom was always getting called by the, the principal or the teachers and I was never at home and I was creating so much trouble and I, it took me a long time to, to get my, my shit together, <laughs> still, still getting it together. <laughs> Uh, but you know, this year it was, it was held in Singapore and, um, I was speaking to my mom and I was like, Hey, you know, why don't you come on over? You know, it'll be, it'll be fun. Yeah. And then, uh, she had a lot of fun. She made, she made more friends than me. Oh really? And like, she was talking to so many bartenders and she was referring to them as their, as her friends. Really? Yeah. So I was like, Hey ma, <laughs> you know, she was, she was like, Oh, it's free flow. Oh my God, you have to bring me here every year. <laughs> I was like, I try, you know, we work hard, we see what happens. And she was like, just going for drinks at every bar. And then I was like, you know, I, I think you had too much. It's time to, it's time to leave. Huh? And she's like, no, no, I'm hanging out with my friend. Like, you can go first. And I'm like, no, we, we're leaving now. <laughs> and uh, how much did this mean to you? And how was uh, your career as a bartender perceived at the beginning? I think, you know, my my family has uh, always been really supportive. So, obviously, they always want the best for you. So, like, my family will always be like, are you sure this is what you want to do? You know, it's going to be tough. Yeah, you're not going to earn as much as your friends, you know. But 
at the same time, you know, if there's a competition or if, if there's something that I'm doing, they're all hands on deck, you know. And if if my mom or sister went around and they saw a little cool cup in a in a shop or a or a cool looking shaker, you know, they'll buy it back for me. So they've always been really supportive, but they I think they were just worried whether it would it would eventually end up to be something and over the years that changed as I took my career a bit more seriously when I was a bit of a younger bartender you know I would go out really late at night 5 6 a.m drinking and then turn up to work at 12 <laughs> you know and then do that all over again and then over the years you know I took it a bit more seriously took care of my health a little bit spent a bit more time at work and I, th- I think they started to see that as well and obviously like uh, I think the point where I, I, I won the, the diplomatic over here and I and I came out on the papers, you know, they had a newspaper cutting to show their friends and, and family. Oh, yeah. So I think they realized like, hey, you know, this this is what he wants to do and it's starting to to grow into something, you know, and, and they've always been super supportive. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, do you see what's the future for Native? Uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. You know, I spent 10 years of bartending to sort of open our own space. And back then it looked very bleak. And now we have Native, you know, it's like, when I come to work, I, f- I feel like I'm I'm living a, a dream, you know, it's like, you know, we have our own space. We have, we're doing something different. And on a Friday night, you know, we're full and we have people who appreciate it. You know, I'm just really grateful for where we are. And I think the future for Native is really in the next few years, we really want to involve the team a bit more. We want to we want to push them a bit more. We want them to do better, you know, and hopefully um, eventually they start doing great things and it, only, and it only looks good on Native because, you know, we want to be a place where young bartenders can come in sort of really experience something different and leave being much better. Awesome. Uh, one last question I asked to everyone. Uh, if you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? My very last drink. So I always say like the next one, you know. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person who, who doesn't really do things the same each time. So like if I have, if I had a cocktail, I won't, have the next I won't have the same one for the next round so if it's going to be my last drink I want it to be like a like a surprise like something new you know awesome stuff thank you so much for your time it was thank great to talk to you thank you brother we hope you enjoyed our interview with VJ. we are Untriggered Media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian thank you for listening